There was an old indigenous folk legend back on Sloan. It said stars were dreams that no one remembers. Like abandoned children of carefree minds that move too quickly from one thing to the next. Seeing the way these fragments that live in light wandered aimlessly around without any sense of purpose, the sky took it upon herself to give them a home. I don't know if I believe any of that old stuff. I certainly don't know about any of that spirit of the sky, mumbo-jumbo. But I know that for all my time aboard the I.S. Lucy, I don't remember dreaming. As if when you're that much closer to the stars, your dreams seek out their own kind, swimming right out of your mind as soon as you start to think of having them. That Thursday night was no exception. A cabin full of sleepy street kids out of place, out of our depths, tossing and turning in the night, with no dreams to ease our anxious minds. Friday was the last preparation day before the big job, and no one felt like they'd done enough. Maybe they felt like they shouldn't have done anything in the first place. It was too late to turn back, but the task of robbing one of the most confident, cautious, and cold-blooded men in the Jefferson sector became more daunting with every passing second. Every bunk in the room creaked and croaked with the sounds and nervous fools whose game of cops and robbers had gone too far. Well, almost every bed. In the corner of the room on the bunk above Galgung, not a creak or croak came. Nothing but the sound of Big Rod's breaths, as low and resonant as the early brustlings of a hot wind and as regular as a heartbeat. Everyone felt underprepared. Everyone second-guessed themselves and doubted their resolve. But Big Rod never flinched. He slept like he did any other night, long and hard, with every breath keeping his dreams alive inside his mind. A head full of stars, with nowhere they'd rather be. day before the wedding, and the whole ship was buzzing and humming, but not like an active beehive during harvest time, more like the static of a radio held by a demolitions man with his hand on the trigger, waiting for that one word to tell him to push that lever down and watch the fireworks. All hands were on deck on the main floor for Mr. Everett's bachelor party and Big Rod insisted that they all spend the day as normally as possible. One by one, every member of their ragtag bunch had gone to him that morning, sweat on their brow, saying that this or that had been missed in the plan and that they needed another week of preparation. But Big Rod assured them all that everything was right on the schedule and that they just needed to trust him today. Trust yourselves, and if that's not enough... Trust me. That was his repeated answer that morning. Everyone knew he wasn't a man fond of using an overabundance of words, but this once they wished he'd make an exception. His plan seemed too full of stunts and chance happenings, with no testing and no real backup. 
at least to them. They couldn't believe that he had accounted for every possibility. The variables just seemed to grow with every passing day. But when they came to him afraid and unsure, they saw the look in his eyes and somehow those words were enough. Trust yourselves. And if that's not enough, trust me. He said them with eyes that burned like a controlled fire, hot enough to burn forests to the ground but contained within the stone walls of his confident gaze. The flames could only move from his heart to theirs, burning out any doubt and insecurity. Mr. Everett's bachelor party was certainly something not to miss in any case, so they were all glad to be a part of it, albeit wearing the service staff black on black. Marcus had complained countless times about the cold, unwelcoming nature of the Lucy's floor staff outfits, black shirts, pants, and vests that made him look like extensions of the black speckled carpet stretching the room out into the blackness of space, but Conrad refused to budge. Marcus always grunted that it was because he wanted to shine like a bright star, accented even more when surrounded by a dark cloud of nameless, faceless staff members. Today, the main room then looked like a shifting starscape as the servers and dealers roamed from table to table, making sure wherever Mr. Everett was, he was well accommodated. He'd paid for everyone who came in that day to play as much as they want on his account, a cost which folks like Marcus couldn't even comprehend mathematically. The amount of money that changed hands in that room every day was enough to turn Sloan from a backwater dump into a first-class city, and still have enough left over to supply all the Sloanies' shiny new six-shooters. To supply the cards for that much money to be in play, just about every table was open, a rare occurrence for any mid-morning shift, and every bartender and every server was working. Galgung was working security at the door. The rat was installing a new sound system since Marcus's drummer smashed up the last one during a particularly unpleasant argument with a customer, wherein some terms that I don't think warrant repeating were said describing that drummer's people and where exactly they should go back to. Marcus notably was not on the floor that morning. He had other business to attend to. Now it's time to address the elephant in the room. Mr. Everett's bachelor party had almost every single employee working it, because it had every single resident of the ship in attendance. Except for one. If there's one thing that almost all of these rich folks had in common, it was a relatively healthy dose of misogyny. There were 250 paying residents currently on board the Lucy. 200 of those were men, and 49 of them were ladies that those men insisted stayed right by their side wherever they went, whenever they went there. The notable exception was passenger 250, Rosie. If Mr. Everett ever had the traditional attitude of the folks that could afford to stay aboard the Lucy, Rosie had whipped it out of him long before they ever came aboard. He viewed her as a self-possessed, equally fit businesswoman, perfectly capable of running his own affairs whether she married him or not. His wealth was clearly never an object to her, and he knew it. She loved him for him, and he felt the same towards her. So for her last day party, she had decided she wanted a guided tour of every room on the Lucy, and Marcus was the one assigned to give it.
He was honestly grateful for the distraction and the pleasant company on a day when otherwise he would have been clicking his eyes around every room he walked into and made sure his shoes were worn all the way through the soles with how much he'd be anxiously tapping his feet. Instead, he had a leisurely tour around the ship, leading a very excited and interested Rosie, who seemed like she was just as interested in him as she was in the ship. Now remind me, Marcus, where did you say you were from? Matter of fact, I come from pretty close to around these parts. I grew up in Fletcher's Post on Grayson, just a few clicks away from where we are now. Can't be more than a two days trip with plenty of time to kick up your feet in a train car on the way and take a well-earned nap, Marcus replied. The question definitely surprised him, but at this point being surprised by Rosie was pretty much par for the course. You'll be heading back there anytime soon. Rosie responded without giving him time to get lost in space as they walked across the promenade from the helm tower they'd just been in on the aft of the ship towards the bow side to take a look at the residential suites in the engine rooms. No, ma'am, Marcus said, chuckling slightly. I haven't been back to Fletcher's in a long time. I grew up there, but I've been traveling around without a real physical home for years now. I don't quite know where I'll go when I finish my time aboard this ship. Oh, are you going to be leaving the Lucy soon? Rosie jumped at the last words of his sentence like an inquisitive, polite hawk at what she had no idea was a critical slip-up. No, ma'am. I I just meant that whenever I do decide to move on, I never like to stay in one place too long, as you'd imagine. And the Lucy, as beautiful as she is, can certainly feel like a one-room farmhouse sometimes. Like I don't ever have enough room to grow, but I've got plenty of work just keeping the small farm I've got afloat. Oh, I see. Well, that makes sense. Rosie responded with the first sentence he'd heard out of her all day that didn't end in a question. It was a welcome reprieve for Marcus, who didn't feel like he'd had a chance to really process through the obscurity of his day's assignment since Conrad sent him and Rosie out of his office that morning. It probably goes without saying that Marcus wasn't exactly thrilled to be visiting Conrad's office two days in a row. Conrad didn't tell him why he was calling him in on a day when there was so much to be done aboard preparing for the wedding, but Marcus could only assume it was a little bit of follow-up on his visit from the day before. The memory of the most horrible conversation of Marcus's life still rung in his ears. The sound of the words that could get his friends all killed dripping out one by one, as if he had no control over an open tap that was wasting what precious water was left in the dried-out reservoir. But when he arrived, he was relieved to see Rosie's beautiful, smiling face turned to greet him as soon as he opened the door. She was sitting, laughing, across from Conrad. Evidently, she was capable of getting along even with Conrad's vacant heart cavity and cruel, machine-like mind. Like everyone else, Marcus had been charmed aboard the Lucy by Conrad's guile and promises of adventure and unfathomable pay for an unskilled worker like himself. But, over time, he realized that the only truth that came out of Conrad's mouth that day was that Marcus's time aboard the Lucy would certainly change his life, a phrase which day by day sounded more menacing than inspiring. As jaded as Marcus was in the Conrad department, Rosie was, as ever, full of joy, 
and could laugh even in a conversation with Conrad, who Marcus didn't think could make a joke if you put a gun to his head, a theory which he very much hoped to test one day. Marcus, today you're going to be taking Rosie on the VIP tour. She wants to see it all, no holds barred. Show her every room on the ship that isn't actively occupied by a sleeping guest. She wants to feel comfortably at home for her big day tomorrow and felt like getting to know the most dignified lady out here, one of uh, Miss Lucy, was the best way to do that. As they approached the engine room, Marcus finally recovered from the original shock of that moment and opened the door to a room full of sweating, shirtless, mixed-species coal shovelers, something that if he was running the show, he certainly wouldn't have wanted to show off to Rosie, but she insisted. Every inch, Marcus. Don't hold back the unpleasant parts. I know they're there. Marcus figured this was the first lady the boys down there had seen in months, so, expectedly, they sure were surprised when she stepped over the dais to the room in a traditional ladies' luncheon dress, beautifully light blue with tall black boots covering up the only visible part of her lower legs under its low-hanging skirt. They planted their shovels in their coal piles and looked at each other with jaws slightly agape at the concept of a surprise visitor to the engine room. The rest of the tour went about the same way. No one quite as confounded as the steam shovelers Rosie had left laughing loud enough to ring down the hallway through the barrier of the six-inch steel door, but surprised to have a visitor in the more technical parts of the ship. At the end of the day, Rosie thanked Marcus for a lovely day out and invited him to her rehearsal dinner that evening, but not as a worker. You are my personal guest, and you tell Conrad that if he wants you doing some odd job, he can take it up with me. She said all that to him quite insistently as they finished up their tour outside the doors to the main casino floor, where the laughter of the men rang so heartily that Marcus thought for the first time there might be something good about this ship after all. At the rehearsal dinner that night, Marcus sat confusedly next to Rosie and Mr. Everett at their personal table with Conrad, Big Rod, Gaugung, and the Rat who somehow had a similarly enriching day being charmed by the groom-to-be. The seven of them had a night to remember, full of laughter, good food, and pleasant company, a surprising calm before the storm to come, where even the rats, over cautious anxiety, took a night off to laugh at Mr. Everett and Rosie's stories of adventures past and adventures still to come, eyes glowing when they looked at each other out of an infectious passion for the hope-filled mystery of the future. Everyone slept that night in the cabin, smiles on their faces and dreams in their heads. Everyone except for Big Rod, who felt that Conrad's pockets were jingling even louder that night than usual, and were about ready to be relieved of all that extra.